to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about uh, bipartisan support for filling the pockets of war profiteers. It's also Tuesday, which means we're having a weekly segment, Tech for the People, and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, just a few days out of the midterm elections, the Senate announces, quote, Through bipartisan collaboration, we've crafted common sense language to confirm that this legislation fully respects and protects Americans' religious liberties and diverse beliefs while leaving intact the core mission of the legislation to protect marriage equality, end quote. This is what the senators of a bipartisan commission said in a statement to the press. They said, we look forward to this legislation coming to the floor and are confident that this amendment has helped earn the broad bipartisan support needed to pass our common sense legislation into law. I don't know about y'all, but I'm like Flavor Flav on this one. Can't trust it. This legislation comes from the Bipartisan Senate Committee that includes GOP Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, GOP Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Democratic Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona, and GOP Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who say that they have the votes needed for the bill to pass and are urging leadership to put it on the floor of the Senate for a vote as soon as possible. I can tell you right now that the Republican contribution to this legislation that, quote, respects and protects religious liberty is going to be some business about pastors and other leaders of faith communities, particularly Christian, who cannot be forced to perform same-sex marriage ceremonies. And business owners, who are people of faith, mostly Christians, will not be forced to provide services for same-sex couples, but states will not be barred from issuing marriages licenses to same-sex couples. Because, honestly, that's how Christians think, folks. Some of these white conservative Christians that the government and the gay lobby is trying to make Christians approve of gay marriage by forcing them to perform gay marriage ceremonies and bake wedding cakes for gay couples against their sacred religion, which to me sounds exactly where we are right now. But maybe I'm just being cynical and negative because, like I said, can't trust it because I know these white Christian nationalists and their terror of being forced to love gay people against their faith. And this supposed miraculous breakthrough on marriage equality in the Senate is happening as Biden admits that because the Democrats do not have clear control of the House to codify Roe versus Wade, he said, quote, I don't think there's enough votes to codify unless something happens unusual in the House. And he said this in a press conference in Bali, Indonesia, while at the G20 summit. I think we're going to get very close, Biden said in the House, but I don't think we're going to make it. (laughs) No kidding. Exit polls showed that voters said that abortion was one of the top issues motivating them to vote, 
which sets us up for a scenario where the Democrats tell voters that they didn't deliver the House to the Democrats so people can't get what they voted for while also pointing to this suspect bipartisan Senate bill to codify marriage equality as it's something that's better than nothing, so you might as well accept it which is exactly what the Democrats need to make excuses for not doing anything the people want while blaming the people for not delivering for the Democrats at the polls. And around and around we continue to go. Jeff Bezos, founder and greedy money-hoarding corporate boss of Amazon, awarded country music legend Dolly Parton the annual Courage and Civility Award, which comes with $100 million in cash. I guess this is going to be an annual thing for Bezos, who gave chef and disaster relief specialist Jose Andres and CNN commentator and activist, and that's, I say that loosely, Van Jones $100 million each last year. Parton responded to the award in a tweet saying, quote, I try to put my money where my heart is. I will do my best to do good things with this money. Thank you. And I'm not mad at Dolly at all. What I am mad at is that just a day or two after this grand display of largesse from Bezos and his long-term partner, Lauren Sanchez, was announced, Amazon.com Incorporated, announced that it's planning to lay off 10,000 employees in corporate and technology roles beginning this week. The layoffs are mostly in the devices division of Amazon, which makes the creepy Alexa devices and home security cameras and some in the retail and human resources divisions. Other tech companies like Facebook parent Meta Platforms uh, said it was also cut more than 11,000 jobs uh, to rein in costs. And the layoffs at Amazon are in response, allegedly, to the company's prediction of a slowdown in sales due to the recession as people have less money to spend during the upcoming holiday season and to the company's shares losing about 40 percent of their value this year. So to mitigate these losses, Amazon says that they will have to lay off around 3 percent of its corporate staff, which is less than 1 percent of the company's entire workforce of 1.5 million. But that's still 10,000 people who will be unemployed this holiday season because Amazon claims it's losing money. And see, this should make everyone mad because if Jeff Bezos has enough money to give away $100 million for charitable works, he could be just as charitable toward his employees and pay them a real living wage with decent benefits and not lay off a single person. You know, the good book does say that charity begins at home, but Bezos isn't a charitable guy. Giving away $100 million is a publicity stunt that really doesn't cost him a whole lot because the man is worth $124 billion, and that is $1,100 million. So Bezos isn't hurting whatsoever by giving away just one of his 1000 millions. But the employees he's about to lay off will be hurting. And I'm sure they would love to see some of that $100 million charity from Bezos right about now, but they won't get it because greedy corporate bosses like Bezos don't recognize workers as courageous enough to respect and support them. Capitalism is once again exposing the rank hypocrisy and humanity that is at its core, showing that people who do the work to make the insane profit possible 
are easily tossed aside by the corporate bosses as mere disposable cogs in their capitalist machine, while they, the corporate bosses, pretend to be charitable by awarding already rich people wealth that they've stolen from those same workers. The question is, as this little cycle goes on and on and on, as always, what are we going to do about it? Follow Luke My Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke My Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace. Medea, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, nice to be on with you. Absolutely. And Medea, there is an amendment to uh, the 2023 fiscal year NDAA, National Defense Appropriation Act, that's being put forth by uh, Republican Senator Jim Inhofe and Democratic uh, Senator Jack Reed that very well could uh, open the floodgates for war profiteers that uh, uh, I think has uh, some far reaching implications even beyond uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, which uh, at least appears to be sort of the basis of what they're advancing here. So I was hoping you could break down uh, just what is in this uh, amendment and uh, what do you see as its uh, motivation? Well, first, let's just understand that, well, it's hard to get Democrats and Republicans to agree on many, many things. Uh, They have always agreed on more weapons, more war, and um, uh, doing the bidding for the weapons manufacturers. And here we have this sweeping amendment that, if approved, would pretty much redesign the way that appropriations for weapons have to go through Congress. And instead of a uh, having each one be approved, um, this would give the open the doors for uh, the weapons to be sent on a multi-year basis, uh, and would have a Uh, the ability to do it with no-bid contracts, making it a lot easier for the weapon companies to, quote, plan ahead for years to come, knowing that they will be getting these massive orders uh, for uh, perhaps even a a decade to come. Yeah, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk in uh, the news recently from the Biden administration about things like uh, HIMARS systems and anti-aircraft missiles. And, you know, if people hadn't paid any attention to these particular weapons systems before, they should now because they actually loom very large in this proposed legislation. What, what Why are they the centers of attention uh, in this proposed legislation? And why is it absolutely horrible that they are? Well, they are using the justification of replenishing the Pentagon stocks for what the Pentagon has sent to Ukraine as an excuse to order massive amounts of new weapons. So you mentioned the HIMARS. The U.S. has sent only about 38 of these to Ukraine. But in this plan, they would, quote, reorder 700 of them. Uh, And this, we go down the line of the different weapons where they say they're replenishing uh, one weapon 
And instead, what they are doing is ordering uh, hundreds of them that have not been sent over, uh, but are weapons that they plan to um, to keep the orders going so that the weapons companies don't have to guess what numbers of orders they'll get year after year. This is throwing in like the kitchen sink. We're going to order hundreds or thousands of some of these weapons, uh, quote, just to have them on hand in case they are needed, which we can decipher as in case there is a conventional war with Russia, uh, or we can also decipher um, to make sure these weapons manufacturers get the uh, the orders in the um, quantities that will keep them happy. Yeah, and you published a piece about this, Medea, with uh, Nicholas Davies for uh, Common Dreams. And within it, um, you all note uh, a quote from Marine Colonel uh, Mark Cansian, uh, which I believe was uh, first published in Defense News, where he was analyzing this. And he said, quote, this isn't replacing what we've given them. Speaking of Ukraine, it's building stockpile for a major ground war in the future. This is not the list you could use for China. For China, we'd have a very different list. And so I'm wondering, what do you think this um, or how you see this proposed amendment um, reflecting on the uh, uh, ongoing war in Ukraine? Um, although we, we are seeing some elements within the Biden administration, like Mark Milley, um, calling for negotiations that isn't uh, certainly necessarily the, the dominant trend um, uh, within uh, uh, that level of power, if you will, and uh, something that people have consistently been pointing out is the danger of an accidental uh, provocation as well. The longer things go, the longer things go on. And so how do you see uh, potentially this uh, amendment um, sort of reflecting on the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, with all of its dangerous potentialities? I see it as the U.S. getting ready in case there is a war with Russia, a direct one with U.S. involvement. Uh, I see this as uh, sending a message that we are ready, um, that, yes, there are some positive signs of uh, negotiations. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk about Mark Milley because one has to wonder, does he say these things on public television uh, without the okay of the administration? Uh, these things being uh, the um, there, uh, it, the winter time is a good time to, when when wars tend to, uh, ease. This is a good time to seize the moment and go for negotiations. So I think the U.S. is getting ready in case there is a, a conventional ground war with Russia. And we see these in the numbers. I think the American people you know, have are oblivious to things like these amendments that are put in there and oblivious to the uh, billions of dollars that are being spent on this. But when you do look at these numbers, uh, you see that they have nothing to do with replacing, but very much to do with preparing for war. Yeah. And then there's always, you know, the impact on uh, the financial aspect of this, um, the the budget. Now, it seems, as you point out in your piece, that, you know, the according to Department of Defense spending, 
um, the uh, the the so far the total of these uh, uh, weapon systems that are pr- basically promised to be purchased from uh, U.S. weapons contractors only total this is only two point seven billion dollars by early November. But what? does this amendment do to basically solidifying the never-ending war as far as uh, allocating this money for, for budget purposes that the American people just can't get out of at this point? Well, so there's a, um, a time delay between what's appropriated by Congress, and we have over $20 billion that's been allocated for those weapons, and when those contracts actually get out the door to the weapons contractors. And so this would speed that up and allow them to have their multi-year, non-competitive, multi-billion dollar contracts go out the door quickly. And this is exactly what the weapons contractors have been calling for. And you can see that by the fact that when this amendment went through the committee, the stock prices for Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics uh, just uh, went to all-time highs. Um, So this is really facilitating what those weapon companies want, which is don't give us these yearly piddly contracts of a billion here, a billion there. Uh, We want to get that whole uh, 20 billion. And there is a um, uh, uh, there is talk that a 50 billion dollar package is being prepared for this lame duck session uh, in the worries that with a Republican-controlled uh, Congress, there might be trouble getting through this through, so they want to push it through quickly. And a large chunk of that will be for weapons. If it goes through with this amendment, um, you will see many billions of dollars being uh, pushed out to the weapons company uh, in, a, in a speed that we have not seen before and with a, for a quantity of weapons that we have not seen. Yeah. And, you know, really, this is just a reminder, Medea, about how uh, war is big business. And you pointed out at the very beginning of our conversation about how uh, Democrats and Republicans, um, though they're sort of <clears throat> portrayed to us as being mortal en- enemies, um, are in lockstep when it comes to uh, uh, issues of war and the uh, expenses that come with it. And I think it just sort of uh, uh, sort of shows, as always, that uh, uh, the political mainstream in the United States is, you know, dutifully uh, uh, sort of a beholden to war. Very. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're very faithful uh, to it as a concept. Uh, if we can say it's uh, uh, something that lines the pockets of a lot of uh, very wealthy people and things like like this. And so I think quite obviously we can't expect any real pronouncement of uh, a peace from uh, these elements. And particularly given the moment that we're in with the danger of uh, open conflict between the U.S. and Russia, it just seems that uh, it's really going to take um, a sort of revitalized, you know, anti-war and peace movement uh, to really fight and to resist things like this uh, Reed Inhofe uh, Amendment, which, you know, not only uh, uh, increased the chances of war, but also will continue to steal precious resources from the people of this country who are already in need of so much. Well, that's absolutely true. And when we see at the same time that the uh, COP27 meetings on the climate are going on uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt and countries throughout the world like Pakistan, where people are still dying from the flooding that happened, 
uh, calling for the wealthier countries to have a, a, a um, damage and loss um, a fund of over $100 billion that will mitigate some of the, uh, the consequences of the wealthy countries' lifestyles. Um, yet this money is going into weapons. And let's remember that there is never a discussion from the Democrats or the Republicans about where is this money for these weapons going to come from. Uh, it just seems to fall out of the sky when it comes to more money for war. And it looks like when they're going to pass this ultimate NDAA, it will be almost a trillion dollars that we're going to be spending on the Pentagon uh, for the coming year. And that is money taken away not only from the needs of people at home, but for these funds like damages and losses that that people uh, so desperately need um, to uh, try to mitigate the consequences of the climate crisis. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, of course, uh, the senators uh, who introduced this amendment, Reed and Inhofe, will um, defend this amendment as, you know, just a, a thing they need to do to deter and prepare for, prepare for uh, what they're calling a Russian escalation of the war. But this really does signal the escalation of war uh, that Biden and his administration promised that they would not get into and how do we respond to this, Medea? How do we, because we always hear on the left that we have to hold the Democrats accountable for uh, the, the bad policies that they make. At this point, how do we hold the Biden administration accountable for bringing us this much closer to a nuclear conflagration, uh, certainly another escalation of war and increased military spending, um, that so that we do uh, not let this uh, increase in military military spending go without any response from the left? Well, we have to build up a movement that uh, brings in the environmentalists to understand how much this war is catastrophic for uh, the environment and for the funds that are needed to deal with the crisis. We have to bring in people that are working on uh, the issues of student debt that say, you know, where is this money going to come from? Uh, we have to bring in people that work on the issues of uh, wanting a health care system that takes care of our real needs at home. And we have to start getting out on the streets because until we do that, um, the people in Congress are not going to listen to us. I've been looking at these massive demonstrations that are happening in countries all over Europe some of them called by the extreme right and some of them called by the left and some of them together with the left and the right. And it's against the uh, inflation that is hurting people all over the world. Uh, it's against the um, weapons that are uh, the money that's going for war instead of going to meet people's needs. Uh, and we in the U.S. have to start doing that as well. Uh, as you know, Jackie and Sean, we used to be able to get people out for um, to protest wars around the Iraq war and uh, other wars. And, and uh, we've been very slow in getting this going now, but we have to do it. Uh, otherwise, the um, Democrats are going to be marching in line, as they're doing now, uh, with the Biden administration in keeping this war going with an endless flow of weapons and preparing for a ground war. Uh, and we're going to uh, leave open the uh, call for uh, an end uh, to the uh, war to the right-wing extremists in Congress, who are the only ones right now who are putting up any kind of fight against this. 
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Medea, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're continuing our discussions about the G20 meetings. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Mindia Gavashelli, Sputnik News Editor. Mindia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Mindia, we had you on just yesterday talking about discussions between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping in the run up to the uh, G20 meeting, which uh, uh, begins today, of course, in Indonesia. And uh, already there seems to be some tensions, as uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, has said that uh, Western countries are trying to, quote, politicize the joint declaration of the G20 summit or the Group of 20. Basically, accusing them of trying to include a line that would condemn Russia for its invasion in Ukraine. Uh, Lavrov was quoted saying, yes, our Western colleagues tried in every way to make that declaration politicized and tried to push through language that implied condemning the actions of the Russian Federation on behalf of the entire G20, which includes us. But let's do this in a fair way and let's make it clear that on this topic we have differences. Yes, there is a war going on in Ukraine, a hybrid war that the West has unleashed and been preparing for years. And so it seems already, Mindy, that basically the Ukraine war is kind of uh, almost uh, the main agenda item for the G20. But I mean, uh, what is your estimation about how things have been unfolding so far? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, The Indonesian president in his opening remarks said that without stopping the war in Ukraine, we cannot move forward and we cannot solve the issues uh, that are against us. Uh, If you remember, G20 was created to confront economic, health, uh, educational crises. Uh, But right now, uh, obviously, the war in Ukraine takes a central stage because you cannot solve the food crisis or the energy crisis, for example, without uh, bringing peace to Ukraine. So, yes, even though Ukraine is not a member of G20, uh, Ukraine was very much on the agenda today here. Yeah, and even though uh, Lavrov uh, made these statements in response to this uh, declaration because he is leading the delegation from Russia, what do you make of the fact that uh, uh, the Kremlin announced that President Vladimir Putin was unable to attend? Should we read anything into that uh, that might signal, you know, the Kremlin's uh, displeasure with Putin's uh, uh, latest actions in uh withdrawing troops from uh, uh, Kherson. Uh, what, what, should we make anything of that, uh, that, that Putin is not leading Russia's delegation and Lavrov is? Well, obviously, it's a signal, right? Putin was seriously considering coming here. However, uh, it wasn't supposed to be just a visit for a visit. Uh, 
just a symbolic visit, if you wish. He was hoping that there will be some serious discussions with other world leaders. However, the U.S. delegations, for example, made clear that they are not going to sit and talk with Vladimir Putin. And therefore, he probably saw no reason to come here because Lavrov is fully capable of leading the Russian delegation. And by the way, Lavrov is not staying here for the final day of G20 summit either. He just left. Uh, We had a chance to speak with him, and you are right, absolutely, Sean. This is exactly how he addressed the issue of the um, uh, final declaration of the G20 summit. And he also made clear that even though Russia is agreeing to adopt a final declaration as a you know, gesture of goodwill towards the host Indonesians. Uh, but Russia is not agreeing with the position that the EU and the US are taking, and it's going to make clear its position in the final declaration, and uh, it's hoping that the number of other countries will join it as well. Yeah, and on the note uh, about Ukraine, I mean, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky actually appeared in a video, uh, a speech that uh, uh, in front of the leaders, of course, that were gathered for the G20 summit. And he called on the, quote, G19 uh, world leaders to uh, uh, try to bring a decisive end to the Russian invasion, of course, in an effort to uh, sort of uh, snub the Russian government also present at the the, the summit. And so, I mean, this is just... uh, it's it's it seems like a kind of a, a strange and certainly very tense and frankly dangerous uh, period to be having these uh, 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 kinds of meetings, Mindia. And the fact that um, uh, Washington has uh, uh, seems to sort of be uh, motivating a kind of effort to have this really be like a single issue meeting. I mean, it seems to sort of have uh, uh, swallowed up uh, almost any other uh, point of a discussion that might be happening at the meeting. I mean, I'm sure they'll be talking about much over uh, the next few days. But um, uh, uh, not only in terms of uh, this issue of the Ukraine invasion and the presence of uh, uh, Zelensky, I mean, it's to the point where the G20 itself almost feels like a kind of statement or almost like a, uh, uh, you know, um, a statement on uh, Ukraine, the invasion itself, more so than an actual sort of international meeting of leaders as it's sort of uh, designed to be, Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because um, all delegations today at the opening sessions were given roughly three minutes for their speeches. However, Ukraine president's pre-recording video uh, address was practically 20 minutes. So clearly, uh, Ukraine was given a lot of attention here today. But uh, even though Lavrov has left, he said that today he had a number of meetings on the sidelines of the summit, including with some European leaders. He said that President Macron came to him and said that he's very much hoping in the coming days to speak with President Putin uh, and can discuss possible peace talks. Uh, German Chancellor Scholz had a meeting on the sidelines with Lavrov as well, and he too reiterated that he's hoping for a peaceful solution uh, of the Ukrainian crisis. So uh, 
the war doesn't end here. We know that Turkey is very actively uh, pushing through and trying to negotiate with both sides of the conflict. Uh, the Turks want to make sure that, first of all, the grain deal remains uh, in place and is extended because this is very much in the interests of all countries. But the Turks specifically are making a lot of money on this grain deal. Uh, also, Lavrov said that he is hearing uh, from Western counterparts that the U.S. and the EU are going to lift sanctions on Russian fertilizers, and that would allow uh, Russia to import fertilizers to developing countries, for example, which obviously will help to solve the food crisis that we are uh, facing right now. So there are some positive signs in terms of peace talks, lifting sanctions. Uh, China today stated that they categorically oppose to using food and energy as political um, and military tools. So clearly they are sending a signal that they are not going to be on board with any sanctions against Russia either. Uh, so we'll see. Perhaps there's some realization that the peace talks are necessary. However, it will be very hard to uh, align Ukraine's hardcore position and the U.S.'s stated hardcore position uh, with these efforts to uh, bring uh, two, the two sides to the negotiation negotiating table because uh, Russia is saying that it is ready to negotiate, but without ultimatums and without any preconditions, which seems to be uh, the demand of the Ukrainian side and President Zelensky himself. Yeah, well, it's definitely interesting to hear these different governments um, pushing for a negotiated end to uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, certainly here in the U.S., we know that there's been divisions within uh, the Biden administration with uh, people like uh, Mark Milley, the top general in the U.S., also pushing for um, uh, negotiations as well. And, you know, I'm just curious, I mean, I mean where do you think things sort of stand uh, on that point as it pertains to, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. and this issue of negotiations? as that seems to be where uh, international opinion is trending. Like I said, on the on one hand, we are seeing the uh, number of countries openly uh, demanding negotiations and openly speaking about the necessity to start diplomacy to end this conflict. But on the other hand, yes, Mark Milley uh, said that this winter is bringing a chance to start diplomacy. However, the Biden administration now is, seems to be in the damage control mode after those words, trying to prove to Ukrainians that, no, 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 we are not forgetting about you. We are not betraying you. We are going to continue supporting you. And the EU is basically doing the same. However, at the same time, the uh, leaders of uh, specific countries like France, for example, I already mentioned that Macron came to Lavrov and said that he's very much hoping for um, like to 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 organize negotiations between the two sides. So you know uh, we are seeing very mixed signals. And by the way, this is exactly what Lavrov said himself. He said that we are hearing talks about peace all the time, 
However, at the same time, we are seeing that Ukraine is taking a very maximalist position. And until that changes, Russia obviously won't be able to negotiate. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mindia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having another edition of our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Chris, as we continue to note the uh, fallout of Elon Musk's uh, recent uh, purchase of Twitter, is this whole issue around uh, Twitter blue and people being able to um, basically buy a blue check, which uh, pretty quickly um, led to a slew of uh, parody accounts of different uh, corporations and celebrities and governmental bodies with some some uh, rather uh, hilarious results. And uh, it looks like, at least for now, uh, uh, the rollout has been uh, uh, paused. Uh, and it appears as though Musk, uh, they're rolling out this uh, uh, official tag uh, to go along with the, the blue check. And so kind of a mess. I mean, it almost seems as though Musk is almost making it up as, as he goes along in terms of what he's doing at Twitter. But uh, just wondering what you're making of this whole uh, 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 Twitter blue uh, uh, fiasco here. Yeah, Musk literally did say, he, you know, effectively he is making it up as he goes along. He's saying that we're going to try some things. We're going to just some things are going to work. Some things aren't. And we'll reverse the things that don't work. But he's not listening to the engineers at Twitter. I mean, in fact, just uh, last night, you know, he Musk posted what he thought was the reason the app was slow. Uh, one of the engineers, I think very professionally, even though he did it, you know, in public, but very professionally corrected him and said, no, here's actually, I'm on the Android app team. Here's what we're doing. Here's why it's slow. And Musk fired him, uh, along with other engineers, uh, by the way, who have been, you know, just speaking out on Twitter about what's been happening at Twitter from a technical perspective. So he literally is just kind of winging it effectively and seeing what happens. But yeah, I mean, we saw when people were able to buy Twitter Blue and the upgraded Twitter Blue so that you would basically get those, you know, what used to be a, a check mark reserved only for verified people and organizations. You had to be newsworthy in some way, um, you know, an author, activist, journalist, a public figure of some kind with some notability to yourself. And there were, there were very stringent uh, guidelines for who could and couldn't get verified. Well, all of a sudden, everyone was able to go get one of those verified check marks for $8 a month. And that caused a lot of havoc uh, for brands on Twitter in particular. Uh, one of my favorites was Eli Lilly, where a fake Eli Lilly account got validated, uh, got verified, got its check mark, 
and then said that uh, they were going to make insulin free, which has then led to Eli Lilly, the real company's stock, dropping significantly. Um, and also, of course, exposing the fact that Eli Lilly, you know, profits in, in a, just a criminal way off of a very basic need that people with diabetes have, and that is insulin. I mean, the price of insulin in the U.S. is exponentially higher than in nearly any other country. And there's, it's all, it, there's no need for it. It is artificially inflated. Uh, another, another great one, I think, uh, with this was SpaceX or a, a fake verified SpaceX said that it's with a heavy heart. We announce we will be ceasing all missions. We plan to funnel 240 million in government, outstanding government subsidies to groups dedicated to sustainable agriculture and ending world hunger. We cannot look to other planets to solve our problems here. So, of course, Musk also owns SpaceX. He wants to colonize Mars. I mean, this is directly calling out whoever did this, Elon, calling out Elon Musk and saying that what you are doing is ridiculous. With your wealth, we could end world hunger multiple times over. Uh, we cannot be looking at going to another planet when we have such severe issues uh, that could be solved with the wealth that you have stolen from others on this planet. But it's also caused a lot of uh, confusion. You know, Senator Edward Markey uh, was a victim of a fake verified account that was putting out uh, some false information. Elon Musk turned around and uh, just insulted uh, Senator Markey instead of, you know, actually addressing the issue. So there have been some great jokes and some great, um, you know, pieces of art, I would call them, in fact, in some of these verified you know, fake verified tweet, you know, tweets. Um, but ultimately it really shows how much we rely on a service like Twitter, uh, for, for information. I mean, if, you know, I, I didn't believe it at first, but if Eli's Lily's stock could tank because of the suggestion that they would give away insulin for free, I mean, that's a very real world, uh, you know, outcome of, a 280 character post. And I think that many people just haven't really been considering uh, the reality of Twitter in that way when it comes to how the Musk takeover has really affected things. I mean, we're also seeing a lot of other issues on Twitter. Musk also said he was going to start turning off 80% of the microservices. And that's just like different parts of the Twitter backend infrastructure that you use. And now people are saying that if they have that special two-factor authentication code to log in, they actually just can't log in because apparently that microservice was shut down. Um, engineers, experts are all just saying how ridiculous it is the way Musk is going about technical and platform and policy changes. Uh, and there seems to be no end to it at this point. Yeah. And, you know, just the fact that uh, Musk fired someone who, you know, as you pointed out, uh, respectfully, but publicly uh, corrected him on something that obviously Musk, uh, Musk knows nothing about, because obviously Musk is really is just making all of this up as he goes along, just as he's done pretty much with his entire career. And I think that's what this episode is also exposing, that that's really just what Musk does. He's just a rich guy who is able to make up things as he goes along and claim that things that he's just taken over are his because he is rich and he can do that. But, you know, how has the the uh, defender of free speech uh, responded to a lot of these parody uh, uh, accounts and a very public and well-deserved roasting that he's gotten on the platform that he's taken over, uh, Chris? 
Well, he doesn't really seem to care much about most of these parody accounts unless they're making fun of him. He can dish it, but he can't take it. Uh, Many people, as soon as they were able to do this, they got verified. They sent their $8 in. They changed their name to Elon Musk. And many of those people have since had their accounts uh, suspended on Twitter. Um, You know, these were, you know, small accounts, individuals. These are also, you know, large accounts, uh, cartoonists, comedians. Um, Musk said you have to explicitly say it's a parody somewhere. But even people who in their bio and their name on Twitter said, you know, Elon Musk parody still uh, had their accounts suspended, uh, which, you know, just shows just how, how really how thin skinned this guy is. First of all, I mean, if you can't even handle, uh, you know, people making fun of you after you yourself go and say, you know, uh, comedy is back on Twitter, which is one of his early tweets after the purchase went through. The then you know what are, what are you really doing? I mean, this guy's you know he's, he's an egomaniac ultimately. Um, you know, you mentioned his wealth, and let's remember his wealth comes from the fact that his father owned a, an emerald mine, uh, an emerald mine in Africa, uh, and you know the so he's he grew up around exploitation. He grew up around. Uh, white supremacy and capitalism it deeply embedded in that system. And it has taught him that he cannot be questioned, that because he has money, there is nothing that anyone can say to him to challenge him. Yeah, that's why I call him uh, everybody's favorite apartheid American. Uh, switching gears uh, a little bit here, uh, Chris, Apple is actually facing a class action lawsuit uh, uh, following allegations that they harvested iPhone user data even when Apple's privacy settings promised that they would not do that. And uh, uh, this was a suit that was filed recently in a federal court in California. That comes uh, not long after uh, Gizmodo uh, uh, published some uh, research into how uh, different iPhone apps send uh, analytics data to Apple, regardless uh, of whether the privacy setting is off or on. And so uh, a breakdown of what's happening here and uh, basically uh, how it is that Apple is um, uh, uh, collecting this uh, data, even though it uh, seemingly on paper violates their own regulations. Well, they're doing it because they can and probably because they thought no one was watching. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple interesting parts to this. I mean, one, you know, just on the face, right? You have Apple who says, you know, that their billboards used to say, you know, what happens on iPhone stays on iPhone. Of course, we know that that is not true. These are mass surveillance devices, although Apple is one of the better ones or has been is still not great. Uh, you know, I mean, it's better compared to Google for sure, but that's a pretty low bar to set right there. You know, when we're looking at what this particular claim is about, uh, there are some settings on the iPhone and uh, yeah, I do encourage people to turn them on, but you know, don't allow app developers or Apple to, you know, track certain information about me. And that's great. And it should be, that should be the end of it. It should be, that should be it. But What some folks have found is that if you're in the Apple's app store itself, even if you have those settings turned off, it's still sending back tracking information about you um, to to Apple. Um, This is also uh, the um, books app, the iTunes store, stocks, Apple Music and Apple TV. Uh, And they're sending not just, oh, you know, somebody clicked this link. Somebody looked at this app, which 
could be useful, right? To know how many people are looking at a certain app, to know where to rank it in a certain, you know, in a category. But they're sending very detailed information that will personally identify you in order to, you know, and that's all the stuff that uh, this video um, that is on this Gizmodo report shows. Uh, very, very detailed information about your phone, your ad ID, which is, like, you know, tied to your, your phone and your account, um, the phone device you're using, the versions you're using, the timestamps of preview videos that you watched for an app even. There's so much information here. Um, Another example would be in the stocks app. Uh, they share the data, including what stocks you're watching, the ones you looked up and searched for, and when you did it. It just in a massive amount of information that you know. I think we would all expect uh, certainly a company like Facebook or Google to track about you, but Apple, when it comes to privacy, always posits themselves as this uh, super protective, you know, pro privacy. Um, organization, except they're not. They are really, they're forcing this privacy on others in some ways with their policies on the App Store, but they're not paying attention to it themselves. The other, I think, deeper thing to note here is that Apple also is starting to um, monetize its own App Store more, not just the you know 15 or 30% cut that it gets from a developer when you spend the money on an app or on an in-app purchase uh, in an app you've already downloaded, but also you can buy ads in the App Store. So an app developer can go say, well, I want to buy ads in this App Store. Uh, and you know I want to target certain keywords. And they're really ramping up that ad buyer experience. And they're going to be showing uh, more and more significant ads. So even though Apple doesn't do a lot of you know system-wide advertising, you don't necessarily see ads that Apple inserts in you know the Safari browser, they're still pushing forward in their own app store with trying to monetize that. So you know it's a different set of issues, but very similar issues to what we would see on uh, on any other phone. Yeah, and even though Apple declares uh, in a lot of their literature that privacy is a human right, it's clear that they really don't believe that with the the shenanigans they pull, uh, you know, compromising the privacy of their users all the time. But there is a lawsuit uh, that is percolating against Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI that involves software piracy and uh, the world of AI that I'm beginning to feel like we are having less and less protection from. What's this lawsuit about, Chris, and why is it so important in uh, the fight against the scope creep of AI that I think is happening in the tech world? Well, this really comes down to a couple questions. I mean, first is, you know, what is open source software? Who has rights to use it? But the second is, what rights do corporations have to sort of remix the software that we use uh, and that we create, in fact, as developers? So there's Microsoft, which everyone knows, owns a company now. They bought it a few years ago called, called GitHub, which is a place that many developers use to share code and develop code and write on you know, improve others as well. Open source, meaning, you know, anyone can go in and make a change or, you know, request a change or propose one. GitHub recently, uh, last summer, actually, uh, it's in 2021, um, released a new thing called Co Copilot. And you could basically go in and say, like, give me a function that prints out the 
you know, five numbers, the first five numbers starting with one. And it would actually write the code based on kind of a sample prompt that you give it. And I'm oversimplifying this, um, but basically that's, that's what it does. But they trained it on the information that was found on GitHub, on the code that people have committed to GitHub. So the real, the big question here is, does an open source license where you let people, you know, take your code, run it, modify it. Um, oftentimes, you know, the license says you need to credit the original author. Sometimes the license says you don't. Does an open source license give a company like GitHub and its partner, OpenAI, that they worked with uh, on the uh, Copilots project, um, the right to basically remove all context from the code that it's generating? That's the big question here, because it's not going to say, well, Chris wrote this software and we, you know, you wanted to do something similar. So we took this function and this piece of code from Chris and modified it and gave it to you when you put your request into Copilot. They're not doing that. They're just magically, it seems, uh, putting the output out. So again, it comes back to when you're putting stuff into an algorithm, because that's how you train algorithms. That's how they learn. That's how they give you an output. Who owns what goes into it, who owns the process that happens, and then what is the who owns the output? Ultimately, you know, I think we need to recognize that uh, intellectual property is a failed proposition. It does not work, and actually it punishes individuals, it punishes even small companies uh, in a, for the sake of larger ones. But while we're still dealing with this system, I think you know, we need to have some accountability from Microsoft. It's subsidiary GitHub and, of course, OpenAI as a business partner here in terms of, you know, the, the fact that they are just profiting and using uh, Copilot to profit off of the labor, the, you know, the work that other people have put in when they have said, I want credit for this. You know, my license says you have to credit me. So really interesting story to follow. Um, there's parallels here with a lot of the image generation services as well. People may have seen Dolly um, and a number of other services where you can type in some words and get an image out. Well, those images have to come from somewhere. The inspirations, so to say, the inputs have to come from somewhere. So this is just one more uh, venue, I think, where we're going to start seeing some really interesting arguments from all sides and you know, hopefully some just results about the ownership of AI, what goes in and what comes out of it. Definitely. In the last few minutes, Chris, I wanted to talk about this piece that um, actually is uh, about D.C., of course, where we're based. That was recently published in um, ARS uh, uh, Technica about um, how algorithms are basically running the town. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I thought uh, the, the local listeners down in D.C. would appreciate this story when I uh, when I sent it over. And yeah, so Epic, uh, the Electronic Privacy Information Center just released a report called Screened and Scored in D.C. Highly recommend people check it out. Epic.org. It'll You'll find a link to it there. Um, if you're in D.C., you can actually see a list of all of the automated decision-making systems that the D.C. government uses from the agencies who have reported so far. They're actually still waiting on a number of agencies uh, to report back, including um, – including D.C. public schools and the Department of Transportation, which I think will be the most interesting ones. Now, there's some applications here on housing and what they call economic opportunity um, in terms of 
you know, assisting, you know, for example, on housing, determining who gets housing assistance first and what that assistance looks like, just using an algorithm to do that. Now, again, there's no openness to who developed the algorithm, what information goes into it to help it learn, what the requirements are to get that help. Uh, set aside the ridiculousness of the idea that people should be prioritized for housing. I mean, there's plenty of empty homes and everyone has a right to a home immediately. Um, but also there's, you know, there's the health agencies are using it. And again, there's just no transparency. There is no openness about the factors that go into things. Now, if you look at the list, you see almost the majority are under the criminal justice category. So we're talking about things like automatic license plate readers, shot spotters, which we've talked about a number of times, uh, which try to detect gunshots that go off to send police and also predictive policing, which is a Department of Justice project. Um, and so when we think about applying AI to you know, housing to so-called criminal justice without any kind of openness, transparency, or responsibility, we get a real interesting look at how the city of D.C. is weaponizing AI really against its own people. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, live by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, it's being reported that Russian missiles have uh, crossed into uh, Poland. 
uh, killing two people. Uh, Polish government spokesman Piotr Mueller uh, has not confirmed this, but uh, did say that uh, top leaders in the government were holding an emergency meeting uh, to handle a, quote, crisis situation. And the reports is that these uh, missiles would have landed in a Polish village near the border with Ukraine. Uh, Pentagon Press Secretary Patrick Ryder has been quoted saying, I don't want to speculate when it comes to our security commitments and Article 5, talking about NATO Article 5, but we have made it crystal clear that we will protect every inch of NATO territory. Also at the top of the hour today, uh, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy has won uh, the Republican nomination for Speaker, beating out his challenger, uh, uh, Representative Andy Briggs, in a 188 to 31 vote. And so it appears that Republicans uh, are, are closing in on the 218 seats that they need for a housing majority, but there are yet uh, still a few races that need to be called. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Philip Agnew, a co-founder of Black Men Build. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be on here with you all. Absolutely. And we're really happy to have you with us, Phil. And, you know, uh, yes. obviously, Phil, you know, uh, uh, coming after these midterms elections, there's a tendency, and understandably so, to sort of get, um, you know, most concerned with, you know, the results, the horse race aspect of it, who won, who loses, what this means in terms of the balance of power within Congress, which is particularly relevant now, given uh, what we on the show consider to be a uh, mounting far-right assault on uh, a basic democratic rights. But beyond that, I really wanted to get into some of the narratives that have been uh, swirling around um, these midterm elections that I actually think we've been seeing consistently in U.S. elections over the last few years. And uh, uh, namely, I'm talking about the uh, uh, discourse or the narrative, if you will, around black men and, and what motivates the way that black men vote or otherwise move politically. And we particularly saw this uh, within the uh, race in Georgia uh, between um, mm -hmm. uh, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, where uh, uh, sort of late in the game, we saw this uh, uh, sort of uh, idea, this notion being put out that black men in mass basically refused to uh, uh, support Stacey Abrams because of, you know, massage noir or whatever. And there was even this point uh, uh, where a professor, uh, Brittany Cooper, gave a speech at Howard University's chapel saying that a, quote, demon of disinformation is making, quote, black male voters in Georgia willing to support Raphael Warnock, but not Stacey Abrams. The thing of it is, the numbers, once again, simply don't bear that out. As uh, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams, as it pertains to black women, 93% of black women voted for Abrams and 84% of black men. So I, I don't know. I guess that uh, demon must not have been uh, too strong or something. But, you know, either way, Phil, <laughs> I, I feel like this is something that, that we do here, specifically from uh, uh, the Democrats, even when, um, you know, the numbers just don't bear that out. Because when it comes to support for the Democratic Party, uh, uh, black women are number one and black men are number two. 
two right behind them. Now, uh, I'm not trying to make an argument that support for the Democratic Party should be seen as sort of uh, the standard or the floor in terms of uh, black politics in this country. But I really wanted to get into what do you think is really behind this narrative and why is it that we uh, uh, hear it so often? Why are black men so often scapegoated in these uh, 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 elections, uh, uh, even when uh, the, the, the actual votes themselves, I think, paint a different story? I think every election cycle, the Democratic Party is seeking to find a scapegoat um, to hide away its continued malfeasance, shortcomings, disregard for poor and working people, notably black people in this country. And so now black men, well, not even just now, I think for a very long time, uh, black people were used as the scapegoat when Democrats weren't able to get over the hump. And we'll talk about the reasons I think why that is, why they're not able to quote unquote, get over the hump. But recent uh, numbers have already been highlighted that shows that black women are what many people call the backbone of the Democratic Party. So they can't blame it on black women anymore. And so black men are now that uh, that 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 scapegoat uh, every few years and used as the boogeyman and used as the uninformed, the ignorant, the turncoat, the lazy, all the different racial dog whistles that we've always seen from both Democrats and Republicans since black people were quote unquote freed in this country are brought to bear whenever Democrats aren't able to do what quote unquote they expect to do during an election. And so for me, uh, as a black man, as somebody who has spent the last few years trying to organize and bring black men into the into the left and not not into the Democratic Party, but into the left, uh, it's, it's not it's nothing new for us to hear. It's kind of new for us to hear black folks now parroting these talking points. But it's nothing new for the Democratic Party to find uh, an enemy within black men. And, you, you know, usually what the black what the Democratic Party does is blame the very people who have, frankly, the most reason not to support them, uh, the people who have been consistently ignored, the people who have been put uh, uh, at disproportionately high numbers into prison, who are disproportionately unemployed, who disproportionately die from homicide, from police violence, from bad health. Um, you blame those very people when you are not able to defeat the Republican Party who has been taken over by the right wing. I think the whole political discourse has been taken over by the right wing. But I agree with you all that there is an ascendant right and the Democrats offer no uh, uh, actionable, no visionary, no radical view of what our country could be if they're in power. Um, and so that is why they are not able to win in mass. That is why people look with their heads scratched, why we would even debate over uh, a Herschel Walker being an elected official. It is because the Democrats have not offered ever ever in the last few generations a real picture of a radically different direction because they're captured by neoliberals and the right as well. And, you know, Phil, there are a couple of things that, that I have been wondering about in this whole discourse about, you know, how the Democrats are now making black men their 
um, pardon my pun, whipping boy, but because that's really Mm -hmm. what it is. They are making black men the scapegoat for their policy failures that they continually just refuse to to commit to, um, to meet people's needs. But there's this 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 propensity for people to point out the percentage of black men who didn't vote for the Democrats, who voted for Trump, which usually hovers somewhere around maybe 10 percent, sometimes I think between 10 and 12 percent, depending on who you ask. And there is never a um, an accompanying conversation about black women who voted for Trump, the percentage of black women mm-hmm. who, who voted for Trump, because there were some. I mean, it's not like there were none, but. There's Mm -hmm. also the other side of that where people look at that number, the 12 percent of the black men who voted for Trump and then make this Mm -hmm. argument that there is something wrong with all black men, that all black Mm -hmm. men who vote um, are are just losing their minds because of this 12 percent of black men who vote who voted for Trump. Why Are we able to have these conversations with such lopsided statistics that we really would not apply to any other group of people, um, particularly not certainly not black women in in this conversation about black folks who don't vote for the Democratic Party? Man, you know, my sister, this is a very complex question, as I'm sure you all have discussed and, and already know. I think on one hand, I'm going to do my best to, to you know, once be clearly and concisely. I'm the son of preachers, and so it's not the easiest, but I'm going to try to be concise and at least clear. I think one of the, the, the reasons, and these are not in any particular order, I think one of the reasons is because Black people in general are expected to, one, have a similar viewpoint. We're all supposed to be one uh, 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 you know, homogenous group of people who have the same views about everything. And we're also supposed to follow and do what we're told. And, and we are told to vote Democratic. And we are told that the Democratic Party did so much for us and that they're the best hope that we have for pending Black Armageddon and stopping it. And so we're supposed to go in that direction. So I think that's that's one reason. This is not the biggest reason. It's just one that comes to mind why people are so flabbergasted why 12% of Black men would do this. I think on the other hand, um, they, they believe that that 12% uh, uh, because we're supposed to all move in lockstep, that that 12% must represent a, 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 a prevailing uh, a group of, of black men who represent actually what they really think all black men feel. They think most black men are anti-women. They think most black men will vote against their self-interest or only are thinking about how to make money or only thinking about anti-immigrant uh, things. And so, you know, whenever there is a, a, a population or one or two black people that do anything, they then paint the whole group with that broad brush. So I think that's another reason. I think a third reason, which I think I feel most passionately about in discussing, not just here, but when we're organizing, when we're talking to people on the street, is that Democrats um, also, uh, th- there's a narrative that, 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 that benefits, and I think it goes to my, the answer to the, my first question, your first question. The Democrats benefit from making those 12% or maybe growing, I think that it could grow, um, of black men seem foolish, 
seem idiotic, seem um, uh, uh, like betrayers of their community, because once again, it obfuscates Democrats from having to answer real questions for how they've fallen short every single time, how they've continuously misled and misrepresented their policies and their and what they intend to do when they get in office. And, um, you know, though black people do consistently support them, the breaking of ranks by whatever it is, nine to 12, maybe growing percent is seen by Democrats as a harbinger of things to come. And so you've got to you've got to stop that right there. This is super complex. And I, I, I'll wrap it up because I know we, we've got a lot to talk about. But this is super complex for me, because on one hand, those that know me and maybe those that don't, I'm a leftist. I consider myself a socialist. Um, I have no love in my heart for Democrats or Republicans, but I'm also a strategist. And so in many states around the country, we've got to align with one of the parties in order to advance some small part of a political agenda. Usually that winds up being a Democrat, hopefully a working families party Democrat or maybe a green or maybe an independent um, you know, caucusing with the Democrats. But usually it winds up being a Democratic person. So I want to say that first. So people who don't know me understand that that is non-negotiable with me. But also I don't run and as an organizer of black men, I'm never going to talk down on a black man who has decided to 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 vote for uh, somebody who I think is a, a fascist and a, and a fool. I think it's the responsibility of left organizations to ensure that we are able to animate a political project that keeps our masses in lockstep with a left political agenda. Capitalism is crumbling. Neoliberalism is no longer seen as a dominant or a, a preferred economic trend across the world. And the masses, including, not especially, but including black men, are looking for an alternative to the dismal material conditions that they find themselves under. And the right in Trump, in DeSantis in Florida and in other places around the country and in the world is doing an all out assault on the airwaves, in homes, on doors. Coke brothers are knocking on doors to recruit people into their vision of the world. And I think that is the bigger issue that we've got to engage with is not why are these 12 percent of men betraying the Democratic Party or betraying the black community? It is what do we do to paint and animate a vision for the world that is a left one, that is collective, that is anti-xenophobic, that is anti-patriarchal uh, and recruit those people and keep them in our ranks? Because I refuse to believe that any black man wakes up and lives their life and says, hey, I want to be a Republican. Most black men do that. They're recruited into those factions, and we've got to fight against that. Absolutely. I'm sorry if I was a little convoluted there as well. I'm trying my best. No, not at all, brother. You, you were crystal clear to me, and, you know, it's a fact. The devil works hard, but the ruling class works harder. And uh, as organizers mm -hmm. and as movement people, I think this is what uh, we really have to, to see. And on that note, even about organizing, I want to swing back around to something you uh, said a little earlier. You expounded on it some, but when you talked about how or why, rather, Democrats have so much uh, trouble, you know, quote unquote, getting over the hump, because I feel like how that issue relates to black men could likely be uh, reflected in how a lot of poor working and uh, oppressed people are sort of uh, uh, orienting towards not only politics in this country at this point, but towards the electoral system as we know it. So the Democrat, you know, this is, you know, everyone talks about it, but 
it is because it's timeless. You know, Malcolm X talked about um, the wolf and the fox. We've got other analogies in the form of, uh, you know, two wings on the same bird. Uh, uh, you know, these the, the political discourse in the United States, especially when you look around the world, even in places that are moving right, um, we, 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 let's be honest, the United States political system is, I don't know the words I can say on here, but we, it, it is not, it is in no way a democratic process. So the Democrats, in my opinion, um, in, in some very substantive ways, the corporate capture of the Democratic Party over the last few generations, represented by the Clintons, represented by the Obamas, um, is, has been in lockstep with uh, most of the right wing and Republican uh, uh, policy agendas over the last 40, 50 years. They've worked together. They've worked in concert. They they laugh with one another. They pal around with one another. They have the same donors. They, they, they pull from the same pool of people for their chiefs of staff, for their cabinet members. These are, in many substantive ways, two sides of the same coin. Now, in the last few years, we've seen a Republican Party um, begin to grab a hold uh, of a more overt racist, fascist, right-wing ideology, and that has allowed for the Democrats to then look a little bit better, but substantively in economics, in law and order, in education policy, in housing policy, in environmental policy, we don't see vast differences between the two. So, of course, the Democratic Party is very hard for them to distinguish themselves um, as a left. The, the, the Democratic Party that we romanticize or that that stood with workers that created um and and advocated for the for what some people call a welfare state but advocated for protections for workers protections for women protections um for 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 um for black folks you know that that democratic party that we romanticize i don't think it's all accurate but that we romanticize is long gone and so absolutely they fall short and can't get over the hump. And it, it's, it's actually funny and confounding and sad that they can't when presented with what people would objectively call a boogeyman uh, uh, of a party, people who don't educate themselves. And I don't, I'm not calling them ignorant or stupid. I'm, I'm saying, frankly, they don't want an educational system that tells you the truth. So they don't want to educate themselves. A party that wants women to have no control over their bodies, a party that wants to have the wealthiest 1% of people continue to make more money and hope that it trickles down and falls and rains down on them. A party that doesn't care about the planet, a party that doesn't care about work, like you it should be so easy to look like the good guy when you're standing up against someone objectively who doesn't have a grasp on reality who doesn't even believe in basic truths and the democratic party can't even do that and that is because they understand that when people are called to the mat and called to the floor and when you say hey let's look at you all's donors let's look at the people who you have on your cabinet Let's look at your policies. And then when they're forced to have to reckon with that and people will realize that they're not that much different. And so um, that's what I mean when I say they can't get over the hump. Yes, there are some outliers and many of them got elected this term. And we've seen young people, Gen Z out of Florida, you know, the same state that went red also put the youngest person in Congress. Um, we've seen 
additions to the squad out of St. Louis and out of Missouri. You know, th there have been people who are able to break away from the lockstep of the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party and actually get arrested. I mean, get elected. Sorry, probably arrested as well, but get elected. Um, but by and large, the, the Democratic Party is not able to, quote unquote, get over the hump and advance and turn out the numbers of people that they absolutely should because they no longer find common cause with working poor, undereducated, um, uh, uh, unemployed people in this country. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Philip Agnew. And uh, Phil, you know, over the break, I was thinking about what you were saying about how these uh, uh, narratives about uh, uh, black men, the scapegoating of black men when it comes to voting and in U.S. politics writ large and how it really is just sort of based in these old uh, uh, stereotypes and tropes about black men, frankly, that I think we can trace back to, to slavery when you talk about, you know, the brute and just sort of being hopelessly a uh, reactionary and being standard bearers of uh, uh, violent patriarchy and things like that. And it also makes me think about what you said about sort of the uh, the character of the work of groups like Black Men Build in terms of organizing uh, uh, black men to the left. And so my, my next question is, what do you think are some of the challenges uh, to doing just that? And uh, just recently, I was reading uh, an excellent book by Dr. Uh, uh, Carol Boyce Davies about Claudia Jones called Left of Karl Marx. And in the book, she was talking about how Claudia Jones, uh, uh, as a prominent member of the Communist Party, really pushed uh, uh, for the party to speak to the specific needs of black women and how this, you know, makes their program more potent and more appealing to black people and how she connected these issues of, uh, you know, race, gender, class, this this issue of uh, a triple oppression and things uh, uh, like this, understanding the contradictions of capitalism as the root of it all. And I raise that just to ask the question of, you know, do you think we need a sort of similar piece in terms of speaking to issues that um, uh, uh, speak directly to uh, the concerns of black men and just, you know, wondering what those conversations have been like in your uh, uh, experience and just how you see that that aspect of a movement building amongst black men. Sure. Thank you for that question. Black Men Build, uh, for a little context in history, we were started because of, of sisters. So it was sisters within the movement who approached myself and a number of other brothers and with the realization and, and, and really responding to the fact that not only uh, not only had we noticed, but they had noticed that, you know, brothers weren't sticking around with the movement, weren't joining the movement with the same level of, 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 of numbers and with the same level of tenacity that we saw sisters and queer folks and other people 
joining the movement. And so Black Men Build comes from there. And so I want people to understand that this organization is a left organization. We're not a, a, a black boys club. We're not a, uh, you know, the he man, woman haters club. We we really believe that personal transformation and ridding the European manhood out of our minds, our bodies, our spirits mm. is a key tenet to us being a part of a left movement. So I want to first add that and make sure that that's clear when anybody hears black men build that they understand that. The second thing to the first part of your question is some of the obstacles. I think the obstacles are very, very simple. You know, organizing has uh, evolved over the last hundreds of years, but not much of the basics has changed. You know, people have lives. People uh, are black men are struggling uh, just to get, make ends meet, you know, struggling with night jobs or just struggling with two or three different jobs who, so they can't come to a meeting. Black men are struggling with uh, our, our identities, uh, figuring out, what does a, a new black manhood look? We talk about new men must be born, uh, kind of building off of Fanon um, and a number of other left speakers and, and thinkers and philosophers have, have talked about we're, we're black men are no different than any other people going through a post pandemic world trying to figure out who are we? How do we get this way? What is what is what? How do we change? How do we evolve? How do we transform to meet this moment? Black men. So that's an economic thing. That's a that's a deeply spiritual and a deeply emotional um, thing. Uh, and, and then, frankly, a, a lot of black men, you know, formerly incarcerated, you know, so we don't know that and we don't believe that the political process still has anything left for us because as a felon or somebody on papers in this country, you're relegated to second and third class citizenship. So you're like, why do I even try? I need to keep my head down. I need to take care of my family. I need to stay out of prison. I need to stay out the grave and stay my ass in the house. And and we see that those are some of the obstacles that we have with, with, with trying to organize because, you know, there is a lot of hopelessness and there's a lot of pragmatism that that really spout, sprouts within the black community, in particular with black men growing up and living in patriarchy. You know, I got to provide. I got to be strong. I got to make sure that I keep my head down. I can't take risks. I'm risk averse. Um, or I already took a risk and that landed me 10 years inside. So right now I just need to focus. I don't got time for big platitudes. I don't got time to, for your Martin Luther King or your Black Panther crap. You know, I got I got work to do. And so that's what we're trying to do is bring black men together. We have men's circles. We have programs like that. Also, we have political education because another obstacle that we're facing, I alluded to earlier, is that the right wing is 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 has spent millions, maybe close to billions of dollars to recruit, educate, train, misinform, disinform black men, men in general, but black and Latino men um, using patriarchy, using the, the, the harbinger of genders changing and sexuality changing and, 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 and all manner of things that um, undermine your conception of who you are. Now look at it front and center. And what has it done for you? Using all of this stuff to really confuse a lot of guys. And so we've got to engage with the disinformation that's happening online as a way to really, really build as well. And so those are some of the obstacles that we see as we're, as we're building and as we're developing our organization. Um, you had a third, you had a second question that, that, I, that I left off. Yeah, well, no, I, well, I was also thinking about because I know one of the uh, planks, one of the programs uh, that you all have is around uh, political and civic education. And I was hoping you could touch on that as well, because we we, we do um, uh, sort of uh, harp on the importance of that here on the show. I just 
indeed, we actually see the show as a form of political education itself. But what does that work look like for you all? So, yeah, so what we try to do is we just had a session yesterday. We've been doing a lot of virtual sessions. We have, uh, I'll tell you about what we did yesterday, but every month since we started in June of 2020, with the exception, I believe, of two months, we've had a national mass call that's on Zoom where we talk about the the uh, uh, an, an item that is dominating the news or the cultural cycle. And we add our... Uh, left lens to it. It's a left lens. Our organizing motto is come as you are, grow as we go. And so it is a left lens, but we also reflect on the fact that we weren't always leftists and we have grace with how we present what we're doing. We're not dumbing anything down, but we just understand where the masses are at on a lot of these political issues. That's where we start. And we hope at the end of 90 minutes that we've been able to move people to a different place. So that's one thing that we do, mass calls. We also do a weekly thing, uh, theory Thursday, every Thursday at 7 p.m., where we do deeper dives. It's, uh, you know, objectively smaller group of people attend that. Um, but we have a deeper dive into some of the cultural or political things that are happening in the zeitgeist right now and go deeper, whether it's elections, whether it was what we did yesterday with over 200 people talking about Kanye, Kyrie, anti-Semitism, anti-blackness. We did that with brother Jared Ball. Um, he anchored that for us and it was an incredible conversation, one of many. So we engage with those things on that level. We also uh, have a publication that we put out called Wartime. Then we, we're on our fourth edition. It's very beautiful. And I, I, I highlight that because I think the aesthetic nature of what we do, has we have to do it artfully. And I think you all do it very well. I heard you spitting the bars on the on the breaks. And, and you know, we've got to, it's got to be aesthetically or audio pleasing. So um, it's very beautiful, the publication Wartime. You can see it on our website at blackmen.bill. But the next one is coming out this month and it's on money, power, respect. And uh, so you'll see money, power, respect on the cover. You'll see it for free at your barbershop or something. You're like, what is this? And when they open it, they're going to see a beautifully laid out, heavy, uh, uh, glossy mat in some pages, artfully done political Black Panther newspaper, you know, where we're talking about money, power, respect. But with the left lens, we're talking about cryptocurrency and whether it's really revolutionary is not. Um, we're talking about power and what that really looks like. We're talking about respect in the black community, even though it's so objective or subjective. Um, we're talking about that. So right now, those are the three main planks of political education that we have. Next year, we're going to start with a curriculum program where we're going to be bringing people through months of political education and theory. Um, but right now, those are what we have. Theory Thursdays, mass calls, which are the third Tuesdays of every month, and then our publication called Wartime that's coming out next month or this month at the end of it. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate the way that, you know, you all think about these promotional materials. I mean, you know, I think that that's a, a much more potent tactic than, you know, stuff like get your booty to the polls and things like that, where apparently, you know, you can only get black men uh, politically engaged through uh, scantily clad women. I, I resent that as a notion. But uh, we have a caller on the line here. Charles, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, uh, I wanted to just make a comment regarding something that your, uh, your guest said. Uh, it, it reminded me of when Biden, Joe Biden, was running for president. He uh, said that if you're not, if, if you don't vote for him, that you're not black. He called that black shaming. And then he made another comment. Uh, they asked him about 
he was comparing Hispanics uh, to uh, blacks in voting, and he said that uh, Hispanics were more diverse than blacks uh, in voting. And uh, also, um, uh, you guess I mentioned uh, just getting over the hump, Democrats getting over the hump. But I think the hump is the bait. I, I think they always say if you if you just keep voting for us, we can we can get over that hump. But then you continuously get the same thing. And then also, uh, uh, your guest that sent us, uh, he made a comment about Malcolm X. But then Malcolm X, I remember, made a comment about uh, blacks continuously voting for Democrats and, and, and getting nothing from it. And I'll listen to you now. All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Charles. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Phil, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think by and large, he was responding and, and kind of um, adding even more context to what I was saying. And I agree with what is what has been stated. What we say within Black Men Build is we're not trying to get anybody to vote Democratic. We do think voting is a part of a larger radical revolutionary strategy for our time, place, and conditions. But and that that requires us to have a sober analysis of of what our vote can do to advance our long-term protracted strategy and struggle. And so I, that's a lot of words to say. We don't tell people what to think. We, te- we teach people how to think. And so um, as it stands, in most places, voting for the Democrat allows for greater harm reduction or at least a better, more amenable opponent than voting for the Republican. That might not be always. Um, and we encourage people to have a really sober analysis on why they do what they do. We also stand up against any uh, black wealthy person who says, I vote Republican because it helps me with my taxes. We think that black people in this country have a responsibility to consider more than themselves, their bottom line, and even more than just their household and that bottom line in deciding um, who they vote for. And it, it is a part of being a human being in a civilized society to consider the consequences and repercussions of voting for somebody who only helps your bottom line, but also speaks ill of uh, the women that you find your partner or whomever you find your partner, whether that be a same sex or whatever arrangement that you have in your love life um, or speaks ill of immigrants or speaks ill of, 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 of quality education that is, builds critical thinkers. You know, it, we don't think that that's a very good way to engage as a black person, but we do think that if you have looked at the options available to you and decide to vote in, 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 in you know, for a non-Democrat, you better have a very good collective reason to do it. We don't know many of them, but um, that's that's where we are. So I agree with a lot of what the brother the brother said. Malcolm was spot on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fact. And another thing I was thinking about is that, you know, I feel like people forget that. You know, black men are not some uh, alien race within the U.S. We're a part of U.S. society and therefore, you know, we're, we're vulnerable to the same propaganda, the same messages and all of that as uh, uh, everyone else. And it's just like if you think about how I believe it was back during like the 2016 election or following that when there were um, parts of the country that that flipped from uh, Bernie to, to Trump. And so when we talk about how 
how people in this country think about politics. And we have this ruling class duopoly of the Republicans and the Democrats in our whole lives. We're basically taught that you're either one or the other. And so when we reach a certain point and we become dissatisfied with one, we go to the other. And so, you know, I feel like thinking about it also in that context kind of helps us understand uh, some of this as well. And, and, you know, and not treat, you know, black men like we're some kind of uh, especially uh, a backward pariah. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here as we try to stay warm here in the studio. Uh, Philip Agnew is here. And Phil, there's another aspect uh, of this that, that I wanted to touch on that, that certainly is political, but that I think sort of goes beyond that in terms of what it means for black men to be in community with each other. And to have those spaces where we can be vulnerable and raw and honest with each other and ourselves, which, you know, those are just not spaces that we have a lot of in this society. And I know that in Black Mm -hmm. Men Build, you all have these uh, uh, community men's circles. And I wanted to, I was hoping you could break down something about that. I was just, I was actually just talking with Jackie, I think earlier this week off air. And, you know, this is kind of a a random pop culture reference, but people may be aware of this video clip that had been going around on Twitter from the reality show, Love and Hip Hop Atlanta concerning uh, uh, Atlanta rap. Yeah, the little Scrappy clip. If I would have thought about it, I would have played it here. But basically Scrappy had this very, emotional uh, uh, exchange with his mother and his wife. And we, we, in that short clip, we got to know a lot about the trauma in Little Scrappy's life. And for those who don't know, Little Scrappy is in, a rapper from Atlanta. A trauma in his life, uh, how that connects to his dynamic with his mother, and also uh, why that makes things difficult in terms of the relationship between his wife and his mother and things like that. And how he basically felt that throughout his life, he didn't have that kind of support and the help that he needed. And now, even today, with the two most important women in his life, he didn't feel like he could necessarily be that expressive. And so this kicked up a lot of discourse and conversation about, uh, 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 you know, black men and therapy and mental health and uh, uh, this sorts of things. And, you know, in, in my experience, a lot of these deep conversations that happen with brothers happen almost by accident. You know what I mean? And there just comes a point where, you know, y'all get together, you're chatting about whatever and, you know, you're breaking it down and cats really get into some serious stuff about their lives, their backgrounds and what they're thinking and feeling. And so when we talk about these community men's circles, how do you all situate that into the uh, uh, political work? How does that kind of space 
factor into a, a movement building in your estimation? Yes. Thank you very much for that. It is central. It is the tip. Um, uh, it is. If we had two spears, it would be one of the tips of one of the spears for us. So we, I, 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 I let me start speaking with more I statements, especially for this. I grew up very, very, very steeped in a particular strain of black church patriarchy uh, and, and uh, uh, ideal. I grew up poor. And so wanting and knowing that I had to be double as good as anybody else to achieve, went to the greatest black college in the history of the universe, Florida A&M University. I know that's right. And, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and was, 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 was pumped up even more. And it's no, I'm not, it's not indictment fully on the school, but pumped up even more with a, 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 an ideal around black excellence that really in a lot of ways, being a part of SBI, the school of business and industry, being a part of SGA student government, being a part of a fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, really reinforced for somebody who was in a lot of ways very gullible and impressionable, not gullible, impressionable, um, that, that there was one way to be. And that way was to be a black man who could do and parrot a white man better than he could. And black excellence was a successful black man, financially successful, who knew which fort to eat with, um, who could, um, you know, party hard, stay up late and graduate and wake up early and go back and work and do the same thing over again. So I was very heavily programmed in a certain type of way. I know if I put 10 brothers in a room, 10 of us will have 10 different versions of that story. But underlying it, very rarely did any of us grow up in a household and an environment that said, hey, be who you want to be. The images that you've been taught about manhood are a lie. The way that you've learned to be strong and to take not to be vulnerable to take advantage of the women in your life, to lie, to manipulate, to keep secrets about who you are away from yourself and away from anybody else, to compartmentalize your, your emotions and your reactions to things, the traumas that you've gone through. Many of, many of us, I haven't, but many of us black men have gone through molestation and sexual assault, had sex too early, didn't know what we were doing. All those things, just bottle that up. And if we were told that we didn't have to do any of that, it is really my my firm belief that if we were raised in in different ways, and it's no fault of our parents. We 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 we're all evolving and getting better, but we were all taught a certain way. But if we were raised differently, then we would never be able to sit idly by as capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy ran rampant in this world. We would it would just be a level of indignation that would set this country on fire. And so for us, the men's circles, the therapy work, we offer free therapy to all our organizers. Some don't take it, some do. Um, we, 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 we really are trying to build and be new men. We fail often daily, as they say in the Bible, you know, we die daily. But the fact of the matter is it is central to our political program because if we do not handle the things that are going on within ourselves, no matter how hard a warrior we are in the fight for revolution, we will inevitably rebuild a black version, a Wakanda version of what we've experienced already. 
it will be just as dominating, just as stifling, just as suffocating, just as heartless and soulless as this thing that we're fighting against. And we don't want to become our oppressors any more than we've already been doing in our lives. And so that's why it's, it's not an ancillary or an auxiliary or an additional part of our political program. It's a central part of it. We don't rest on personal transformation. We think it is a catalyzing part of becoming and continuously remaking yourself in a revolutionary manner. Ah, yes, Wakanda, that imaginary Hollywood African-like nation <laughs> that so many actual African descended people in this country are identifying with the fake culture while they completely yeah. ignore the real continent of Africa with the real people all throughout the continent who are engaging in this continued struggle against neocolonialism uh, and imperialism on the planet and all of that actual real culture that folks are not identifying with calling themselves African, but rather calling themselves Wakandan. Oh my God! <laughs> Look. That's that, exactly you, you. That's that's exactly what that's what you called it. I mean, I look. I I I say this as a comic book geek, and I love a good comic book movie, and I love a good action movie just because, and and good science fiction. But for real, for real, Black Panther and that series is getting on my nerves for for that reason because people are adopting this fake Hollywood culture of this fake African like place, but. But this leads me to a, a question that you sort of answered that I'm hoping you can get a little bit deeper in, because I've always felt that the reason these right wing groups like the Koch brothers and, you know, the GOP and, and other uh, uh, groups are able to make a little bit of headway. And, and again, we're not talking about like. 40 percent of black men buying what these folks are selling. We're talking about maybe 12 percent, 10 percent, I think, is probably more accurate of black men who who say, well, you know what? I, I get something from from the Republicans that I don't get from the Democrats. And I and when you talked about the way that. Black men's needs are met by some of the things that they are offered by some of these folks, or or at least their issues are 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 addressed or 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 acknowledged. What are those issues? And I really feel like those issues have a lot to do with not just capitalism, but the particular unique brand of black capitalism that we cannot shake. It's like a bad cold. It's like every mm -hmm. every four years or so, it comes back as another iteration of something else. I mean, we I thought we we shook the crypto craze off only to have Investopedia. What what was it? Investfest? Yeah, like yeah Investfest <laughs> yeah. and, you know, uh, 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 brothers on social <laughs> media blowing up, earn your leisure, teaming up with, you know, oh, so, yeah. so. Oh, my God. How, how, how large of a factor do you think capitalism and black capitalism and the pursuit of legitimacy, legitimacy through black capitalism plays in in this whole conversation we're having about black men and and political um, seeking their political fortunes on the right, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Well, one thing I want to say, and I'm glad, I'm really glad this was an hour. I know I talked long, but I, I think a lot of these conversations take a long time. So thank you for that question. I want to say first that I believe whenever we talk about that 12%, it's 12% of black male registered voters. And I think there's something to be said about the class dynamic of uh, who becomes and stays a black male registered voter in the United States. Uh, so that's one thing I want to say that 12%, we may not, uh, they don't have, they may not have similar class interests as us. I'm a registered voter, I'm a, but you know, I made it through. I made it how, how I got over, you know, fam, you saved me. So I, 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 uh, I want, I think that's something we could talk about another time. The second piece, the meaty piece of your question. Okay. So, I think that the black capitalists, the black Wall Street, our, our love of these days of old where the black dollar circulated a billion times in our community, like the Jews and the Chinese and all these people that the black capitalists love to parrot as being better economically in, than our community um, is a big driver, a big driver to that 12% of black male registered voters who I think have, may have some different class interests than we think, um, why they are moving towards an economic message that says, uh, 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 we, we, the Democrats haven't put money in your community to start a black owned business. And I think, you know, we can draw a through line to, to Reagan. I believe it's Reagan or Nixon. Was it Nixon or Reagan with black capitalism with James Brown going around singing about how great he was? I'm, I'm forgetting. I mixed those Nixon. two devils up, but Nixon. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so I think we can draw a through line. Hey, you know, you know, you, you, you can, you can become something in this capitalist empire and uh, the Democrats don't want you. They want you and your woman on welfare. They want you <laughs> and your woman dependent on this big government. And so we I think it's a huge part. I don't I don't even know if I have anything to add because you put so much in the question. That is a primary driver. Right. Economic uplift, the 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 building of a black utopia and a, a independent economic power and the Jay-Z's and the Diddy's and the billionaire class, how we can be amongst them is is a huge driver. I think another one that we can't divorce from it because they work so well together is the patriarchy. And we don't want I don't want us to deny how powerful because you're talking about your first part of your question, which is a very astute, is talking about what policies. And I don't know many policies other than some of the ones Trump passed around um, like community improvement zones and, you know, and but. I, I don't know. I think maybe you could get a black ec economist or black cap guy to come up here and maybe list off some economic policies, some hard policies that Trump moved in his chaotic term, uh, his fascist term that may have benefited a small class of black men who were prepared to take advantage of this economic manna from heaven. Right. But I think more than policies, it is the posturing. Of the of some of these fascist Republicans that 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 tell black men I'm tough, you know you know those Democrats who got your woman and your woman talking back to you and telling you you not nothing to get up off your butt because she's a feminist now and got your daughter thinking maybe she likes girls 
And you you know them Democrats who who just got you feeling all weak and threw you in jail. You know how Clinton and Biden threw you in jail. Well, you know what? Come to this side. You know that should that should nature. You know, come on over here where we're going to return you to your rightful place as a black man where things aren't so confusing. Yeah, you're below a white man, but you're below you're above that black woman who's talking all that jazz. You're above that white woman. And I think a lot of it is the posturing more than the policies. It's the strength. It's the return to the olden days, which weren't so confusing with the words that you didn't know about. The the God that you that put you at the front of the household It's those things that in some ways, more than the policies, which, like I said, I, I can't list off many that or any that that really have begun to plant a seed within, um, I think, some segments of the black community who feel left behind by the economic system. But it looks like they're left behind by women, black women who have more degrees, who earn higher, et cetera, in this economic system, who feel left behind by their children, who feel left behind by technology and the jobs that are never coming back and who feel left behind that that the Republicans are able to strongman and present this strongman image that I think is enticing to some people. And I don't think they're fools. I don't think they're traitors. I don't think they're idiots. I think we were raised to see a certain way as the way out. And Republicans have now been able to to put that on on, on blast as as the Republican right way. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Jackie, the conversation we, we've had today, I think, is precisely what's not happening in the halls of uh, a ruling class politics when we talk about uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans, because what they're focused on, uh, first and foremost, is, you know, not only upholding the capitalist system, of course, but protecting their particular class interest. And we know that uh, a ruling class interest are contradictory to that of the poor and working class. But this is the tricky part for them is making their interests seem like they are our interests. And therefore, we should go to the ballot box and pull that lever for them every two and four years. And so that's how we black men, black people, poor working oppressed people in general get put in this trick bag uh, uh, every so uh, often. And, you know, it's like when, when Phil was saying earlier about being a socialist, when we talk about socialism, you're talking about a tradition that has no small number of black men in it to this uh, <laughs> Uh, very day. And so, you know, it, it's our tradition. This revolutionary tradition in the U.S. is as much ours as uh, anyone. And in the 21st century in the United States, with capitalism and imperialism in its death throes, it's important that we consider this as we push towards a socialist reconstruction of this country. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Philip Agnew, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.